Hi, everyone, and welcome to special simulcast of Freedom from Addiction, Truth Just Below the Surface in the Neil Haley Show. I'm excited to welcome to the program, Reverend Wynn Henderson, MD. Wynn, how are you? And uh, this topic today, we just continue to talk COVID, and one of our best experts that has come on this program is joining us today. That's right, Neil. Um, we've got uh, Dr. Caxton O'Pair uh, today on the program, and he's been on a number of other times. And you can look at uh, at uh, my uh, my podcast and go back and and get his other programs because uh, he he's uh, so good at um, critically thinking about and evaluating scientific studies relating to COVID nineteen. And you know we're here to bring you the truth just below the surface, and Dr. Caxton is providing the truth. Uh, Dr. Caxton O'Pair is a board-certified internist with 31 years of experience, and he is experienced as a frontline COVID physician. And um, so, um, Caxton, it's nice to have you on the program again. Thank you, Dr. Anderson. It's a great pleasure being here again. So I've got your new book. uh, And... uh, we will talk about uh, Amazon blacklisting in the previous book, perhaps a little later. But um, um, what was uh, surprising to me was that that they want to support a narrative that goes against many of the things that you have found to be true. And they're in your book. They don't want people to be able to read them. Is that right? Yes, absolutely, Dr. Anderson. Well, um, I don't know if there's a way of getting around these problems. The people have a narrative that they want to push. They've got an agenda that they want to push, and they're going to push it. They're going to censor the people that don't buy into their narrative, and they're going to do everything in the world to demonize them and make you think that there are conspiracy theorists that don't know what they're talking about, just so that they can get a shot in everybody's arm. Or at least that's what it seems to me. It's beginning to look that way. So uh, I'm, uh, we've got a lot of material, but we've got a hard stop at nine o'clock. So I'm gonna try to get as much of it as I can in. Um, sure. There was a story that you told in your book about a mysterious coroner. Can you give us a, a quick summary of this doctor and what his town uh, showed? Well, during the pandemic and as it's rose to its peak in one of the rural emergency rooms I work, this gentleman came in one night to ask the nurses. I had given them two of my books in the emergency room. So this man is a coroner, he's also a physician. He came into the hospital one night after he left the clinic. I I don't know why, maybe he saw a lot of COVID patients and he knew he had to do something. Even more importantly, as a coroner, if people die the way they're probably gonna die inside the hospital within 24 hours or less, he's gonna have an overwhelming task of certifying deaths and saying yes or no, no autopsy, get an autopsy. So he came into the hospital, asked one of the nurses to help him 
download the Amazon app. He had no Amazon app. He downloaded the app and then he bought the book, the HCQ debate. And the very next day or sometime the day after he started writing hydroxychloroquine cocktails based on the protocols in the book. Uh, it's a book I wrote in September of last year, the HCQ debate. He started writing it. And we see usually about six patients in a 12 hour shift between eight to 12 patients in a 24 hour shift. A month and a half later, I went back to the ER to work the same hospital. And for 24 hours, I didn't see a single COVID patient. On the second 24 hour, I was working a 48 hour shift. On the second 24 hour, about 7 p.m. the next day, a diabetic came in and I said, wow, this is our first COVID patient in more than 24 hours. So the ER nurse said, oh, you didn't hear? I said, hear what? I don't live in this city. What can I hear? He says, she said, the coroner got a hold of your book and the protocols and started taking care of these patients instead of sending them up to the university center where they were doing nothing for the patients. So there was a nearby university, big university center, about an hour or so away. And these people were not treating the patients. Of course, they were following the uh, Fauci cocktail of do nothing. And the number of cases per day dropped drastically in that city. And that's why I put the man's, I didn't put his name and identity in there, but he saved a lot of lives in that city. By and just, he, he saved them by using the uh, hydro, uh, hydroxychloroquine and the combination with zinc, vitamin C. But the main component of that cocktail is hydroxychloroquine. And again, I think it was hydroxychloroquine has been blacklisted. And we know why now. It's very obvious and clear to everyone now at this point. But he saved a lot of lives with that drug in combination or if patients had heart failure or significant heart problems, it just gave them hydroxychloroquine and the other cocktail of zinc and the uh, nutritional supplements. Okay. It did a fantastic job. And that's why I put his story in the book. Okay. So I'm on uh, the introduction and I'm going to quickly read you what you wrote and then you can tell me uh, what comments you have about it. In the United States, doctors have been split. We have doctors who do not see the role of any agent in the early treatment of COVID-19. They maintain their position by citing tainted scientific data, naively believing science cannot be used to tell a lie. Some of these doctors also launch attacks on doctors that have critically sifted through the data and have decided to treat early COVID-19 patients with pre-approved drugs. Unfortunately, doctors that cannot see the value of early treatment have always posed a real danger to the well-being of those seeking such early treatments from them. Unable to critically assess the literature, yet priding themselves on analysis obtained from news outlet doctors that may have been paid by vaccine manufacturers, these doctors refuse to treat patients and watch them die or get seriously ill and hospitalized following infection with COVID-19. 
this group of uninformed or rather ill-informed doctors is one reason the pandemic is still with us. What's your comment? <laughs> it's a pretty bold statement. And it shows not my own arrogance, but my frustration. Dr. Wayne, when you think about it, we have a situation where a group of doctors use a drug and it works. And another group of doctors then come up with a clinical trial to intentionally try to disprove the first group, which is the doctors that treated patients and got results. And I didn't know that there is a crookedness in the pharmaceutical world or the scientific or medical world this much. A professor in San Diego called Professor Lemon McHenry, Professor Lemon McHenry, he said, when you publish a paper showing something is great. And he wasn't referring specifically just to COVID. The pharmaceutical companies, if your results compete with their drug, they will hire a medical writer who will forge and create a fraudulent paper. And sometimes within few days after you've published your paper, another paper will come up in a reputable journal showing the contrary. But here's the problem. If a doctor says hydroxychloroquine works or ivermectin works, what use is there for another group of doctors to now do a study showing that it didn't work for them? A patient has a risk of death. There is a drug that works for a certain group. Isn't it our responsibility to do everything we can for the patient, knowing number one, that the drug is relatively safe, it's cheap, it's accessible, there's easy access to that drug. When a patient has only one option, death or severe disability, and there's a cheap drug with a safety profile that's over three to six decades, meaning both ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine, I don't think any real doctor who cares about lives has a choice. But we are seeing these doctors thinking they have a choice to claim intellectual superiority and refuse to prescribe the drug that may be of use to patients. And that's what spurred me to make that statement very clear, that if you're a doctor, and you refuse to do something that you can do that may save that patient from being hospitalized with this pandemic, you're not just a coward, you may be a murderer because it's a very strong statement. And I don't veer away from strong statements because the inertia amongst doctors, the fear that they have, there is no more justification for it, looking at the number of people that have died. We are in a time of war with COVID and doctors should be willing to educate themselves and be bold and confident. They're coming in a little late, but it's never too late to come in and say, look, I've looked at all the papers and I'm gonna prescribe this thing because it may be very helpful. And there are no other alternatives to well, the early. You know that I surveyed Oh, maybe as many as 35 doctors uh, mm -hmm. previously. 
Yes. And to see if I could uh, get a patient uh, to get a prescription for hydroxychloroquine and not a one of them would do it. And the basic reason was that they were afraid that if they did, the powers that be would take their license away from them or do other destructive things. And uh, so that's referring to what you were talking about. Doctors are afraid. They're afraid yes. of losing their jobs. Yes. Yeah. But I think that when a doctor arms himself with knowledge, because some people on Facebook, some people actually said, hey, Dr. Perry, you're saying people should use hydroxychloroquine. You know, you could lose your license. And I had to respond to them by saying, I can never lose my license. The only doctor that may lose his license is one who doesn't know what he's doing. I know the data. I looked at the papers. I read the research. And there is nothing in those papers that tells me not to use hydroxychloroquine if I feel it's going to be useful for my patients. Nothing whatsoever. They can lie. But if you get all the actual data and read it thoroughly, you'll know that those people publishing those papers are lying about the lack of efficacy of hydroxychloroquine. And as you can see, now we have ivermectin and they are indifferent. They are feigning indifference to ivermectin. So much so that the FDA has said, oh, we're not saying don't use it. We're not saying use it. And then they found another company, Merck, who has distributed almost a billion doses of ivermectin. And then this same Merck is saying ivermectin is a dangerous drug. This is a drug that they've allowed to be over the counter. Anyone could buy it to deworm uh, their children or adults. You don't need a doctor's prescription in most countries with ivermectin to get it. And all of a sudden Merck turns around and said, it's a dangerous drug. That's the level of atrocious behavior found amongst the pharmaceutical companies. And they're also spurring the fear amongst doctors because we've always looked up to them to provide financing and research uh, information. And that's no longer true at this point. They just want to make a profit and they don't care who dies. Exactly. And, and, and the reason they want to do that is because if then this, you know, pandemic was over, what is there to do now, right? It's big pharma. So if you could say we could easily take it, especially if we are susceptible to getting COVID more likely than other people, meaning like you're really always involved with people, you're seeing yeah. so many people like you're a frontline worker or yeah. even certain things or you but they won't say that because they got to get the vaccine out everywhere. That's the bottom line. Yes. And you heard about the third booster, right? Yes. The third booster is coming. Yeah. You remember, Nick, I, Neil, we said this earlier in the year. Remember that they're going to try the third. I think you actually mentioned that and said, do you think they're going to try to do a third booster? or they're Yeah. Come yeah I, I was one of the first people to say that. I knew it was happening. Yeah. Yes. I remember that. And the whole idea of trying to vaccinate a person. Now, I want to remind us, the COVID affected and killed 291 or 297 children. I don't know the exact number. 
during the pandemic at its height, 291 children died. But all those 291 percent, I mean, 291 children, 100 percent of, of them, all of them had one or more comorbidities, chronic illnesses. They were sick children, every single one of those children that died from COVID. Now, as of April, there were 789 cases of myocarditis in people under the age of 30. Now, you want to look at these numbers very closely. As of June 21st, there were at least 1,300 cases of myocarditis in this young children. And myocarditis for a young person is the equivalent of a heart attack. So picture this. The CDC, they're saying, well, there were 1,300 plus cases of myocarditis. It's not just a statement. In reality, myocarditis is a cause of death in children. In the very young, the newborns, those born within the first year of life, if they develop myocarditis, 75% of them roughly will die from it. In the older age group, the 30 or less, the numbers may be between 15 and 75% that will die. So when you look at COVID by itself, no treatment, nothing, 291 children die and every single one of them was very sick with something. Now we wanna give the vaccine to very healthy children and out of those healthy children, so far we know 1,300 as of June 21st, 1,300 of them, what, have developed myocarditis or pericarditis. And out of that, about 40% will die. So if you just do a simple number between 15% and 75% and say, we're gonna take the lower one and say 40% of the children who develop myocarditis are going to die as a result of it. That's 40% of 1,300 as of June, that's 520. So basically COVID by itself will kill 291 people, I mean children, but the vaccine, and remember the COVID was killing children that were not healthy in the first place. Now we're going to give a vaccine, and the vaccine is going to kill a minimum of 520, which is 40% of 1,300. And as of today, I'm sure it's more than 1,300 children or young adults who will have developed myocarditis from the vaccine. So even if we take the June 21st number of 1,300, 520 healthy children are going to die as a result of getting the vaccine. That's not a benefit to those children or their parents. And more so, let's look at this basic factor. The vaccine does not prevent you after you've gotten it from transmitting the virus to other people. So when you want to vaccinate children who have a highest risk of developing myocarditis, which is basically giving children a heart attack. Who are you helping? You're not helping the children. They won't even have been sick in the first place. They transmit it. But you're not even helping their parents. If you say, oh, well, when we give the kids, it will pre prevent the 
kids from transmitting the virus to the parents. The virus or the vaccine rather, the vaccine does not prevent you from transmitting the virus. So basically you're just trying to kill the children and we don't know where that's going to end. Okay, there is no let, let, me, let me break in. I wanna talk about the vaccine. You yes. talk in your book about the vaccine that they're giving people in the arms. My uh, take on this is that is not a real vaccine. No, it's not. I, I, looked I, agree. It up, I looked it up and they said vaccines were from dead or attenuated uh, viruses. I'm and uh, and this is not that. This is something totally different. So I don't know why we continue to call this shot a vaccine. I know the reason that they want to call it one is so that they can limit the liability of big pharma to get sued when people have death or a bad reaction. They want to let them be able to uh, vaccinate as many people as possible and never suffer any financial loss. So they call it a vaccine. So every time that we're talking today, I am in my mind putting vaccine in quotation marks because that <laughs> is not what the people are getting. I agree with you 100%, Dr. Anderson. And you know, people like to argue that it's not a form of gene therapy. And I said, you've got to not be able to think critically. It may not be an exact gene therapy, but it is a form of gene therapy. And why? What do genes do? They control protein synthesis, right? So imagine that you now have a snake, a portion of a snake venom, the part of the snake the gene in the snake that controls venom production. And you take that portion of the genetic code from the snake, and then you insert it into my DNA such that I start producing snake venom in me. That's gene therapy. But let's look at the end product. The end product is I begin to produce a protein called snake venom. But if I don't let it attach to my DNA and I create an mRNA that not, it doesn't go into my nucleus to affect my DNA directly, but instead it goes to the ribosome, which is one step closer to protein synthesis. The mRNA then produces the snake protein, not from my DNA, but from the protein producing uh, factory called the ribosome. At the end of the day, God didn't make me, design me to be producing snake venom, but you have now inserted something into my body that's now gonna make me produce snake venom. That's gene therapy. And instead of snake venom, it's a spike protein. Ladies and gentlemen, it's gene therapy. And that's my take on that. I don't know what Dr. Henderson feels about that analogy. Okay. Uh, whether you call it gene therapy or you don't, yes. it's not a typical, typical traditional 
vaccination. Now, you said, I knew something was wrong when the vaccines, in quote, last year, when Dr. Fauci started claiming that the vaccine was safe, just yes. two months into clinical trials. No yes. one else in their right mind will tell you that a two-month-old vaccine is safe, even if it has 100% efficiency. To think America is supposed to be one of the safest places for a child in the entire world, despite reports that people are dropping dead shortly after getting vaccinated, we not only ignore the statistics of the clinical trials or adverse vaccine reports, we add insult to injury by recommending the vaccine, in quote, to young children. Where are the evidence-based numbers on risk-benefit analysis that allows them to arrive at such a horrific conclusion to vaccinate children? While the myocarditis, pericarditis complication in children is short-term, the CDC is intentionally ignoring the potential long-term effects of these, quote, vaccines on growing children or the reproductive system of young children. And now they're wanting to do clinical studies so that they can vaccinate children. Yes. All right. When you think about that statement, or the group of things you just read, young children are growing. No one in their right mind knows the long-term adverse effects of these vaccines. They never did sufficient animal studies. And, you know, there's a staging of vaccine, you know, strategy and administration through clinical trials, where you first test mice, then you test monkeys, and then you test man. And at each stage, when you go from one animal, which is the mice, you not only test the mice, you evaluate the offspring of the mice. And if you get everything right, we know there was no time to test all of this because of the pandemic. We'll assume that they will then use the data that they've collected and the information they have to decide, number one, who needs to be vaccinated? The children don't need to be vaccinated. Less than 0.04% of children who got infected ended up in hospital or dead. In fact, there were eight states in the United States that did not record a single death for children. And the numbers are so low, there is no basis for it except an agenda, which may be profit or something even more sinister, Dr. Wynn you cannot find any justification. There's something called a risk-benefit analysis, which was how I gave the example of 291 kids died in the midst of this craziness when we didn't know what to do, or most people didn't know what to do. And now that we now know what to do, we have already set up at least 500 young children, the future of this nation, We've set them up to die simply because we want to vaccine. And we're not done yet. On April, I think April 12, the CDC, FDA, NIH met, and they then made a recommendation that children from the ages of 12 
should be vaccinated. Remember, it was the same April where they had 789 cases of myocarditis. Back in, I think, 1976, when they had the swine flu uh, vaccine, they gave over, there were over 400 people that developed Guillain-Barre syndrome, which is the equivalent of being run over on your spinal cord by an 18-wheeler. You're paralyzed, and you're paralyzed from the waist or from the legs all the way to your diaphragm where you're unable to breathe. As a matter of fact, I lost an, an old friend from Guillain-Barre because they didn't make a diagnosis on him real quick in the uh, late 90s. So by the time they had 40 million people vaccinated with the swine, uh, swine flu uh, H1N1, by that time, the government felt we have vaccinated enough, but we've got 400 people with Guillain-Barre syndrome. About 63 of them died. We need to stop vaccinating. And they did stop vaccinating with that vaccine. Now okay, we've let, let me let me break in because you're such a good medical writer, and this is in your book, and the people that get your book can read it at their leisure and everything. But you said still no medical justification for vaccinating these young children, except that there is a hidden agenda or it's just plain corporate greed with total disregard for true efficacy. The risk of harm outweighs the benefits of the mRNA vaccine, in quotes, to children and should never be compared to effective immunization benefits from tetanus, measles, smallpox, polio. We yes. must apply the brakes on vaccinating children with these new quote, vaccines. If we don't, then the policymakers may be psychopaths for allowing this to take place. When so, uh, yeah, we are getting close to running out of time. We wrap this up. Um, Dr. O'Pair, um, we didn't get to the, the, the best part. The Amazon Back part. and do another program? Sure. Okay, so... Um, the book is called COVID-19 Remedies, A Frontline Doctor's View. Um, you can um, get a copy of that how, Dr. Appear, quickly. Yes, on Amazon.com. Okay. All right. Well, I, I think that's it for today. And we'll get back with another one. And we got better stuff coming. Thank you. All right. Well, we appreciate it. Thanks again, guys. Appreciate that. Again, that was Freedom for Addiction, Truth, Justice, Below the Surface, and the Neil Haley Show. And great to always have Dr. Caxton on the program. Thanks Thank again. You. And we appreciate it, guys. Thank you. All right, guys. That uh, Appreciate the show and take care. And you're listening to the Neil Haley Show. And we'll be back in just a moment.